Welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the podcast for military history geeks and people who love great stories from Britain's past. In the last episode, we explored the storming of Badahoth in April 1812, a brutal, grim affair that saw terrible casualties. Well, today I'm joined by two fantastic guests to talk about a very different battle, Salamanca, fought in Spain against the French in July 1812, 209 years ago this month. Some say the battle was the Duke of Wellington's greatest victory and the best example of his prowess when on the attack. Stick with us until the end of the chat to hear more on that. So before we get on with the show, I just wanted to take a second to ask you to subscribe and to leave a comment on your podcasting app. It's a small thing, but it really helps the podcast to get found by other people and new listeners. You can also sign up for my mailing list via redcoathistory.com newsletter. I send out a monthly newsletter packed with links to interesting and quirky military history content. Okay, so the French are advancing. Pick up your brown best musket and follow me to Spain. It's time for the Battle of Salamanca. Let's start by meeting our new comrades. My name is Gareth Glover, um, and now a military historian, ex-Royal Naval officer before that. Um, but for some reason, decided to get interested in the army and the, the, in the Napoleonic Wars rather than the Navy. And um, have spent the last 20 odd years now producing sort of a number of books on the subject. I'm actually about to publish number 100. Um, and obviously, although I've done a lot on Waterloo, I'm also very interested in uh, the Peninsula War. Marcus Cribb, I guess I'm, I'm relatively new to the field. I was a manager at Apsley House for three and a half years, which was the Duke of Wellington's home. And I also looked after Wellington Arch, which was a structure which was kind of repurposed as being a memorial for him and a few of the war memorials nearby. And that's where I found my, my passion for Wellington, but actually more specifically the Peninsula War. Uh, Waterloo is the kind of the end chapter to a really interesting saga and I've chosen often to focus on smaller battles but Salamanca is not one of them Salamanca is one of the big set pieces of uh, Wellington's strategy and I spend far too much of my spare time shouting how Wellington wasn't a defensive general and he was uh, an all-round general and capable of going on the attack so uh, I'm looking forward to championing some of that tonight. So after the capture of Badahoth in April 1812, Wellington turned his Allied army northwards once more. Let's hear from Gareth all about the strategic situation faced by the Allies. As far as I'm concerned, um, Badahoth, obviously the great success it was, although very costly, actually then became a huge problem in a sense for Wellington, because what do you do next? Because clearly um, there were five very large French armies still in, in the Spanish peninsula, all of which were not far off the same size as him. So he clearly had a, a bit of a problem. And in fact, he literally had to sort of start looking at how he could uh, develop a strategy where he could effectively isolate one of these armies and to actually in, 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 engage with that army if possible in a, in a way which, where he could actually drive the, Sp- the French back but, you know, to do that, he had to do an awful lot of work behind the scenes in actually finding ways of actually ensuring that the other army, French armies could not intervene. And that in itself is a huge uh, sort of discussion, should we say, because he, he literally got the sort of Royal Navy sort of uh, keeping the, uh, 
Northern Army sort of very well sort of um, occupied on the northern coast of Spain with regular sort of attacks on the coastline there. He arranged for Lord Hill to actually make an attack at Almaraz to break the only bridge before uh, between sort of the Portuguese border and sort of Madrid uh, across the um, the main rivers there, so that it's it stopped it stopped Sult moving from the south to help out as well, or to actually sort of give any help to Marmont in, in the north there, and then you have obviously uh, him recommending attacks on the eastern coast of Spain to keep Suchet and his uh, army well occupied as well. So it meant that in fact. He was forming a, a number of strategies to actually ensure that he could move forward in attacking Marmont in actually looking at just the one army that couldn't bring forward any form of uh, reserves from the other armies. And he therefore was facing something of a similar size to himself. He still had to be very careful. He only had one army and if he lost it, that was it forever. Whereas with the actual French, they clearly had the ability to get further troops again. Uh, so it wasn't such a disaster if one of their armies had a, a failure. But he clearly wanted to find an opportunity where he could actually take on this army and with advantage, hopefully uh, take this one army out of the equation and then move forward. Uh, but that was his big dilemma following Badajoz. And th this was kind of his dilemma throughout the war, really, wasn't it? Because he was always outnumbered. It was just a case of trying to take on these French armies one at a time and not letting them combine and sort of crush him through superior numbers. Absolutely. Um, you know, as I say, it, it is, if you look at his uh, correspondence, it is absolutely filled with schemes and demands of government and of other uh, sort of uh, sort of uh, politicians, etc., in other parts of the world uh, and whatever, to actually just constantly look at ways of getting um, the the different French forces to be pulled in different directions, with the whole intention of uh, of isolating single units, which he can, he has then a chance of taking on. Yeah. So he manages to, to get Marmont to get his army together near Salamanca. Was, was there any particular strategic reason the two armies came together close to Salamanca, do you know? Um, from my view, Salamanca is important only in the sense of it's, uh, a, it's a crossing on the Tormes River, but there were many crossings on the Tormes River, including many fords. So in fact, that isn't the issue. It was the only major settlement uh, which could be used as a base camp by the French in an attempt to regain Rodrigo, Rodrigo and actually invade the northern um, half of Portugal. So really, to be honest, it, it was useful to get the French out of Salamanca for that reason, because it removes their th localised threat. But beyond that, it's not, to my view, the most important part of, of why they were there. That battle could have happened anywhere in a hundred mile radius of that, because it just, it's circumstances to some extent brought them there. And the, the two armies had sort of been in that area since June, hadn't they? Sort of well before the actual, you know, Battle of Salamanca that we, that we think of. Mm -hmm. What had been happening? Had there been a bit of a cat and mouse going on? Absolutely. Um, basically, uh, there were long periods where the two armies uh, even marched 
alongside each other to an extent, as, you know, sort of half a mile apart or whatever, occasional cannon fire at each other or a bit of skirmishing, but the, the entire armies marching uh, alongside each other, trying to constantly outmaneuver the other one. So to get onto the other's sort of lines of communication, etc. The French were doing that particularly, trying to Harris, uh, Harris um, sort of Wellington into retreating back into Portugal because he felt his lines of communication were under threat. And so it was a complete cat and mouse game, which went on for weeks. Both commanders had at times opportunities when they didn't even realize they had a, a local superiority and could have even won a, a major battle before Salamanca happened. Um, but they didn't take the opportunity. It was only at Salamanca that finally one of them actually did take it. Well, in the in the longer build-up, you've got about six days of this, of them marching in parallel, the troops often being well within eyesight of each other. And kind of, if you can imagine being the, the British red coats and often the green jackets out the front of this point, they're actually looking over their left shoulder and seeing Marmont's troops looking over their right shoulder in response. And they are really, they're not quite within you know, musket shot of each other, but certainly they could stop and start an engagement. And they're both, they're not quite yet probing, but they're just looking for an opening at any one point. And this is coming back to something I said earlier, we often get described Wellington as a defensive general. And here he is on a linear move for several days. Uh, and it doesn't quite happen until the battle itself. They are looking for these openings. It actually leads to some interesting examples. The night before the battle, there's a terrible thunderstorm and, uh, you know, Gareth written at lengths of the Battle of Waterloo and they had a torrential downpour on the 17th of June. And we have this huge thunderstorm uh, the night before the battle and actually several horses bolt from uh, various Dragoons encampments. And I think from one regiment alone, 18 men from the Dragoon Guards actually get trampled by their own horses and they lose about 30 horses. So they get these really, it's really strenuous um, circumstances where the men are, marching through really dusty you know terrain it's the height of july in woolen uniform with if they're lucky with a felt shako on to give them some cover from the sun and then at night time the torrential downpours on the spanish plains so for themselves at a kind of a micro level it's actually a really unpleasant campaign and would it be fair to say that wellington had kind of been outmaneuvered a little bit by Marmont at this point it's getting close, but they're both looking for the opening. I would say that they're probably on a relatively equal footing. Marmont's done some good manoeuvring, but Wellington's still got some tricks up his sleeve. He's spread his army out, but they're still in a good contact with each other. One thing, maybe, Gareth, you can fill us in. Can you give us a sense? How big were the opposing armies at this point? I mean, what sort of numbers are we talking here? <laughs> Actually, Salamanca is actually one of those where it's quite difficult to pin down the numbers of French there, actually. Um, the nearest I can come to is it was pretty even at around about 50,000 each. But that could have varied on either side by about 2,000 or so. But really, to be honest, if you're talking the great number of things, it's a, a balance of things. It's, it's pretty even numbers. Uh, the only thing that is there's a noticeable difference in is the British for very, very unusual uh, for them to have uh, a superiority in cavalry. And what you would expect as normal is the French had a great superiority in artillery. 
So there was some little difference between the two. But um, as I said, the numbers overall pretty similar. And Marcus, why why on this occasion did the British have this superiority in cavalry? Because that, that wasn't necessarily the norm, was it? It had taken a no, it wasn't at all. Uh, Wellington was always crying out for more things, and guns and cavalry were were two of them. But he nearly always fought his battles on a back foot. And like Gareth says, they are depending on all the different sources you pull together. They're really close in many different levels. Um, in cavalry, he's managed to draw together. He's managed to preserve. They've also managed to train up um, Portuguese cavalry, uh, which is really key. It's something we've talked about before in this podcast, and the Portuguese by this point, are really uh, integrated into the army and actually doing independent brigades and they're integrated into different elements. They are thought of as being every bit as good, in some cases, better than the, the British regiments. So he's got a wide range of uh, troops he can call upon. There is a Spanish force, uh, but it's less key to lots of the story. Uh, and he's actually, Wellington is liaising with them, with Miguel de Alava, mm. who's a really interesting character because he comes on again at Waterloo and ends up being one of the few characters who we know who witnessed Waterloo and Trafalgar and actually goes on to live at Apsley House. So that's why I like Miguel de Alaba. Wellington's, he's uh, his liaison and uh, he's writing to him. So there's there's a whole mixture uh, going on there uh, within the armies. And not he, he hasn't only just got larger cavalries. For once, Wellington's actually got good cavalry commanders. Since we've lost Duxbridge, um, quite early on and we've got both Stapleton and Cotton uh, with the army but we've actually got leading a brigade of cavalry a man called Le Marchand um, kind of French sounding name he's from the Channel Islands family and uh, we have talked about him earlier on the podcast because he was the man who redesigned the British cavalry swords so he's actually really there um, and the drills that go with it uh, he's actually there on the battlefield at Salamanca as well so, Gareth, can you give us a sense what sort of marshal was Marmont? Because I haven't covered him on the podcast before, so a lot of the, the listeners won't have come across him. Mm. Can you give us a sense of, of, of what sort of general he was and what his background was? And, and was he this sort of over-promoted protégé of Napoleon that some people said? Yeah, no, I, I can't agree with that. Um, he actually... Um, started life uh, very early on uh, at Toulon, uh, he met Napoleon. Um, and by the time he went to, into Egypt and into Italy, he was an ADC um, and clearly uh, made quite an impression on Napoleon. Um, although when the first marshals were announced, he was very upset when he didn't get one of them. Um, so um, he clearly wasn't as good as some of the others. Um, at that stage, anyway, I think the biggest thing you can say about it, he, he is then carries out a number of successful campaigns elsewhere. Uh, elsewhere. He was certainly uh, in charge of the artillery at Marengo uh, and did extremely well there. Um, and after that, he sort of um, was involved mostly in sort of um, the top of Italy and, and into sort of uh, what we know as Croatia, etc. Now, um, that sort of area. And because of that, taking the, the uh, what was then called Ragusa, which is now Dubrovnik. Um, he actually became the Duke of Ragusa. Um, and he was then actually made a marshal, sent off to Spain, and actually performed quite well as a strategist. And in fact, he wrote a number of books on strategy later on, which were highly, highly recognised uh, and thought of. Um, 
I think the thing that is said about him possibly is that he was great at making up the strategy. He perhaps wasn't as good at actually making sure that the actual armies did exactly what he wanted them to do, if you see what I mean, on the day, as we'll see at the Battle of Salamanca. Uh, but he he did then later on have quite a successful um, career. I mean, he, he still fought at Lutzen and Bautzen, etc. Um, and in fact, actually, uh, unfortunately, then got involved in sort of um, uh, the the, the, the sorry the um, loss of Paris in eighteen fourteen, and then actually went on to the other side, and uh, therefore the the word Rugusa actually became a dirty word in France afterwards. Um, uh, as basically a traitor and evermore. Um, so his name is, has got a bad taste in France from, from that. So did he, did he turn against Napoleon? Yeah, he actually, um, he did then actually sort of go on to Louis XVIII's side. Although, funny enough, he, he wasn't really accepted by them. And in fact, he spent most of his life afterwards in exile away from France. So even though he hadn't fought for Napoleon in 1815, he actually didn't get um, accepted, should we say, by um, the king afterwards in a great, in a great way. Uh, he, he, he spent the rest of his life largely away from France. Yeah. But it um, certainly was not a poor officer by any chance, or should we say a general by any chance. People like to compare Napoleon's marshals and uh, say which one's best and rank them, but it's really difficult. They've all got different traits. Some of them are definitely stronger administrators, but to be the biased person always in the room, Wellington continues to beat them, whoever comes across it. Uh, they have different traits and certainly, you know, Ney saying things, like Bucasso that Massenet ignores, and there's certain elements that they've all got that they could do better and they have their own bits but you know um marmont he's borderline one of uh, napoleon's closest friends he's been with him when he was a junior officer and he's been his aide so he's potentially been inflated a bit above his ability um because of his being in the one of the inner circles uh and uh, people can kind of make of that what they will when you uh, start to extract who are Napoleon's marshals. Are they the, the, always the greatest generals or are they right place, right time? And he might be the latter. I, I have to come back on that a little bit and say there were times in the six or seven days before Salamanca where Wellington was quite worried about how well Marmont was actually uh, moving his army about. And in fact, one large feint on his left wing really did get Wellington sort of upset at one stage and sort of quite worried about what was going on. And in, even, even at Salamanca, um, what he was planning to do, as I said, it was more the, the seeing the execution through was his failure. Um, in, if you look at him in terms of strategy, I think he was up there with the best. Can one of you give us a sense of the geography of what was to be the battlefield? Like when the two armies finally came together, what were the sort of key points that we should know about before we move into the actual fighting? So what we're doing here is we're onto the really wide plains outside of the town of Salamanca. And it's really dominated by two large geographic features, the Arapiles. So you've got the greater and the lesser Arapil. 
and uh, they are, you know, large rolling hills with huge rocky escarpments on them. Uh, boulders, they've actually got ridge cracks that are taller than a man. And uh, it finds later on that uh, the Portuguese troops have got to kind of put down their weapons and pull themselves over it. So I believe they're, you know, about six foot high. Uh, rock just drops down and throughout that um, you've got a really flat plane between the two of them and then off to the distance almost to the French rear you've got a large forest and then to Wellington's rear you're pushing back towards the town but the the you know the landscape directly is these these two town these two hills and the larger the greater Arapel is slightly closer to the French and then the the lesser, as it's known, the smaller Arapel is closer to the Allied army. And then there's a few small um, inhabitants, you know, villages uh, that are closer to the Allied army with a, with a road running down behind the French, which uh, they can make use of if they need to. But it's relatively featureless apart from these, these two outcrops. What, what was it that happened on the morning of the 22nd that, that led to this, to this battle? Because obviously the two sides had been shadowing one another, both looking for their opening, and it hadn't happened. What, what happened on the morning of the battle to change that? Marmont manages to keep marching from very early in the morning, from about eight o'clock. They're up, you know, it's long days, we're into July, and the French are marching, trying to sweep down from the east to a kind of southwesterly direction, kind of long curve march. And they see off in the distance a dust cloud, which uh, they probably think is the baggage and Wellington's about to retreat. So they start to march faster, especially at the hedge where they get closer to this dust cloud. But it isn't. It's one of Wellington's divisions. It's the third division, actually, to be specific, under his brother-in-law, Ned Packenham. And they're actually coming in, not marching away. So as they are marching forwards, they start to get strung out with the head of the marching column speeding up and the back still marching at the regular pace. And that causes between the French divisions gaps to appear. This is taking a little while. They actually push in, capture the greater Arapel from um, the Portuguese Cacadors. They just get there beforehand, uh, but they are strong, um, strung out. And this gives us a really famous scene where Wellington's having uh, a quick snack. Uh, I've just got to interrupt here for a moment. For any listeners of the podcast, ever since I've known Marcus, he's been wanting to tell me this story of the chicken leg. <laughs> so I can't believe that we're finally at the famous chicken leg moment. So Marcus, please, please take it away with the chicken leg story. With the Salamanca chicken leg. Um, so yeah, here we are. Um, and it was something Wellington did a lot of. He, he ate from the saddle. Uh, normally he ate light snacks. He had um, hard cheese, hard boiled eggs, bread and uh, cold meats in his saddlebag. But we think he just got down off the saddle. This story has been told so many times to different sources. It's always slightly told differently. And he's either sitting down um, with his generals surveying the scene or he's actually stood with his spyglass surveying the land. And he sees this gap and he's eating and he's, looking and he's eating and he's looking and he sees this gap and he asks his aide do you see the gap he says yes he chucks the chicken leg behind his head apparently and goes by god that will do and orders the attacks he orders so everyone off to go and uh, give the various orders and he mounts up himself on copenhagen 
and dashes off to the third division several miles across the empty uh, plains, outstripping all of his aides to reach uh, the third division to give the order himself. Uh, he's a fantastic horseman. And so then he can then order in this kind of counter sweep. But yes, there's, there's loads of different stories of the chicken leg <laughs> and what people didn't dive into. Was it actually a chicken leg? Was it cold meat? Or was he sat down or was he still in the saddle? But we're pretty sure he was said something along the lines of, by God, that will do, and did a dramatic gesture uh, with his with his lunch. Well, I'm I'm going to take that opportunity to throw that over to Gareth to see if he thinks that's an apocryphal story, or or did that indeed happen? What do you think? How do you know I was going to question that? <laughs> um, <laughs> there is probably some basis behind it, as in he may have been resting, he may have been having a. Uh, you know, sort of a bit of lunch or whatever it was, and something may have occurred. However, I do find it telling that all of the eyewitnesses could not have been there. I haven't found an eyewitness who was actually with him who says anything like it. And that is telling to me in the sense of, you know, did it really happen or was this a bit of a story that went around the troops over the firesides the night after, wherever? Who knows? Um, as I said, I'd like to think there's a bit of, of, of truth in it and some, some of it's true. Um, you're right, Marcus. I mean, there's so many different versions. I was reading three this morning. One had a chicken leg, one had a piece of beef and the other said he wasn't eating at all. He was drinking. <laughs> so you tell me, you know, by the end of the day. But they all tend to be people who have related it sort of 43rd hand, I think. So I, I, I as a historian, I have to say, I take it. I would like to say it's true, but it's, it's, I take it with a pinch of salt. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, uh, you know, let's not let the truth stand in the way of a good story, as they say. I've heard too many historians saying that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so at, at this point, could we say Marmont was being careless? Had he kind of lost control of his divisions at this point? Like what what, what do you think was responsible for, for this gap that led to, to Wellington's eureka moment? It's, it's un undoubtedly um, the... The generals commanded the divisions, I think, had actually literally decided themselves what to do next because Marmot was not keeping close control. Uh, and that's why I say that where he, he is not as good at actually implementing as he is at thinking about the strategies. Um, and it, there is a, a lot to sort of say that Tomia, who actually uh, was in the first division there, who charges off and produces his big gap, uh, is almost being too keen to just march in that direction, thinking that he might be able to be uh, perhaps make his name for himself by cutting off a division or something that as they're trying to, as the British are trying to retreat is what, as, as they seem to think was happening at that stage. Um, and as I said, and really at that stage, yeah, Marmont has lost control, but it's almost like he never had the control in the first place because having given out the orders, there's not much evidence of what he was actually doing afterwards. He sort of, he goes up onto the, uh, the greater Arpil and he sort of uh, keeps an eye on the, 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 the fields around, but that doesn't keep an eye on what Tomier is doing way off to the left. So, you know, he, he has very early on lost control of his divisions because they're not following his original orders. And maybe I should let Marcus pick up because you were just in full stride as, <laughs> as, as Wellington showed his amazing horsemanship to race across the battlefield to the third division. Can you pick up what happened next then? 
So it works really well. Wellington gives the orders directly. Uh, he doesn't actually manage to give them to Ned Packenham, his, his brother-in-law, who's married to Kitty Packenham. Um, but they actually get the order straight to him. Wellington dashes back and the third division come steaming in, in effect, you know, really are running down across the plains. And they come in um, straight against Tommy Ayer's division in a two deep line. Uh, they, they reform and they, you know, really are a hammer onto the glass, smashing into uh, the French line. Um, basically, bayonets attacking, bayonets fit, sorry, attacking in uh, and going for it. Uh, at the same time, uh, Wellington Centre, especially around the 5th Division, engage in a longer musketry duel uh, with the French. And uh, this is where uh, Stapleton Cotton orders Le Marchand, the cavalry commanders, to each other to go in with the heavy cavalry. Uh, we've talked about before about the different types of swords. This is the heavy cavalry, a.k.a. sharp sword. Um, these are the, the big horses, the big men going in and they are starting to sweep through, and they actually push through two lines of French, um, completely shattering uh, battalions and pushing through and diving through them. He, men who don't have time to form into full defensive squares, and there's, they cause huge casualties, and a large part of uh, the overall casualties are caused over on this left-hand side early on. Wellington's cavalry at Salamanca was a strong force that included five regiments of heavy dragoons whose main purpose was to deliver powerful charges using their weight and esprit de corps. La Marchand, who was allegedly seething at a disrespectful comment made by Stapleton Cotton, led this incredibly successful charge. He was killed in the process. Yeah, he carries on going. He takes uh, a half brigade uh, in and then carries on with the half squadron, so a, a troop, of casuals, um, troop of cavalry, right on, uh, actually, towards the, the far woodland. And uh, he, is, he is shot and um, killed at really close range, uh, which is the end of what would have been a fantastic um, career. And I don't know how much the army really realised this at the, the time that, you know, they'd lost one of their senior commanders, um, because it's certainly a blow to kind of the history of the cavalry is saying earlier, you know, he, he wrote the book on how to use the swords. He redesigned the swords and he didn't get a lot of chance actually in action. So it's a really unfortunate thing is, you know, any loss in, in battle sadly is. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of one of those what ifs if he carried on that way his career would have gone. Well, we've we've kind of uh, we've brushed over quite a lot of action at the start of the battle here with the attack of the third division, the fifth division, La Marchand's uh, heavy cavalry brigade. Maybe this is a good point to ask Gareth if, in the course of your research, is there a lot of good first-hand accounts of of this early fighting on the twenty-second? Is is there anyone you'd recommend people look up, or any any you've come across that you'd like to share? Well, I particularly like accounts where it's actually of the of the moment should we say um and there aren't funny enough many great memoirs of the actual the battle um it's it's one of those very strange conundrums at the end of the day uh you've got wellington one of wellington's most famous battles but it was fought over such a large distance that for most individuals they would have only seen a very short part of the action and in fact in many areas, the fighting was all over in an hour or two, um, you know, in their, their, their section or whatever. And therefore, 
they often don't give it an awful lot of, of thought. In fact, as I said, when I came to do this, uh, this presentation tonight on this talk tonight, um, I went through all of the new evidence I could find and I've all dug up over the last few years and surprisingly found not an awful lot on Salamanca. Um, it tends to be written more by those later on, like Grattan is a, is a, is a great example of the 88th uh, and Singe, who actually was a, an ADC to pack uh, and comes up with quite an interesting bit on the Portuguese, which I'll mention again later. Um, I, I do find overall uh, the majority of people don't actually, you know, it, there's there's more about the storm the night before and the fact that that is a good omen because, you know, if, you, if, you, if Wellington's going to win a battle, it's always, you have to have a storm the night before, otherwise he's got no chance. Um, <laughs> that's how they see it. Um, and then it's a very short sort of statement about what they did or saw in the battle. And then it's all over and they're chasing him to Madrid. So it's, it's, I find it quite frustrating and I would love to have said in the last couple of weeks of research for this, I could have found some astounding new evidence. And I really on this battle, I cannot believe how little that is said about it. Isn't that isn't that crazy, really, given the importance of the battle that there is so little? Yeah, well, that's, what I, that's what I mean. I mean, you'd think it was as, as really, if you look at it in many terms, it's, it's as important, if not more important than what he did at what, what, in the Waterloo in, in a number of ways. But I know we weren't getting as many soldiers memoirs at that stage. We know that um, the literacy rates uh, picked up dramatically, even over those few years. And in fact, a lot more sort of ordinary soldiers and sergeants and that were writing back from Waterloo than they ever did from Salamanca. And that's part of the problem. Um, but most of them, unfortunately, also then wrote many years after the battle and they get what I called napierized, which is they actually have read Napier and then launch into a great sort of description of the battle, 99% of which they couldn't possibly have actually seen. Uh, but they use Napier and therefore that becomes, you know, again, a regurgitation of him and his errors in a lot of cases as well. Yeah. And just, just for really any listeners who, who may not get the Napier reference, Napier, of course, was the great Peninsula War historian who, who served in the peninsula himself. Um, was he with the 43rd? He was, and he was actually yeah. at Salamanca. Right. OK. So, so would you recommend Napier's uh, coverage of Salamanca? Is it, is it a good one for people to read? No. No. <laughs> in one word napier is pretty controversial yeah you have to read napier with a great bowl of salt behind you because literally at the end of the day um he was very politically minded he loved certain officers he hated others and it didn't matter how well he did in battle if he hated you your write-up on that battle was not good at all um and uh, he therefore has to be treated with a lot of uh care should we say there are other historians like Oman and Fortescue that wrote in the early 20th century who you can rely on a lot more, although they're not perfect by any means, um, but um, you can certainly rely on them to be a little bit more impartial, should we say, than, than our William Napier was. Can I just pick up those two, those two points there? One, um, William Grattan is a fantastic read to cover loads of different battles um, from the 88th Connaughts, uh, an Irish junior officer and he really some of his accounts are just page turners they are rip roaring action and then for anyone who knows gareth's work i'm amazed to hear him say that salamanca is more important 
than Waterloo, given his amazing uh, catalogue of works there. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a real bombshell moment for many people who will be listening, I'm sure. Well, we, we well, might have to come back to that, I think. Perhaps at the end, we can kind of recap as to how important Salamanca really was then. I think that's definitely one to come back to. <laughs> be, be, before, we, before we jump ahead then, could, let's just kind of sum up the early part of the day. So we've had this attack by the 3rd Division, then Leafs 5th Division. We've had the heavy cavalry brigade attack. Was the battle as good as over at this point? Am I right in saying Marmont had already been wounded? You know, uh, was it two of his divisions had been chewed up? Or uh, perhaps you'll correct me on that. But, uh, you know, some of his divisions had been chewed up. What was the state of play at the end of the cavalry charge there? I, I was going to say something we hadn't covered. Um, Marmont gets a load of shell bursts, I think, in his, his arm and towards his side and his, maybe his ribs uh, quite early on. I think only an hour or two into the main part of the fighting. And he, he's injured. And actually his second in command is already injured and has gone to the rear. So it, it goes to his, his third in command, who is very swiftly injured. He goes to the rear so that the original second in command has to come back. He was, I think, injured in the heel. So there's a period of time where the French army is effectively without a commander, whereas the top two people are already out and the third one's having to come back and forth so they do lose real impetus and they're on the back foot having to respond to this push pressure in the center i would say from the from the british infantry it's not a full attack at this point and then the the third division are doing a full-blown you know really dynamic attack on the flank um so they are actually putting in a lot and the french are not used to being on the back foot like this many of their battles you know they are used to kind of forming column and, and going in at great strength with their great ilan so to be on the back foot with no leader to direct them um really um do, does tell early on and what can we say about the the fighting spirit of the french at salamanca i mean were these you know, the sort of the French troops of old, you know, these these veterans of Austerlitz and so on. Or or was this a bit of a second class force Wellington was against? Do we do we do we have any information on that? I would actually um, like to come in on that and say that, yeah, you can look at the troops that were in Spain full stop and they were not the prime troops mainly. Um, there were many troops from other countries of Europe that really didn't want to be there, for example. However, I would say that um, to say that they were a second-rate force is is giving them a major disservice. Um, during this battle, as a, as a perfect example, um, when they actually get into major firefights, they seriously cause serious uh, losses to the Allies. Um, it's when they get caught out of position, out of formation, is when they perform badly, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and as I say, we'll obviously deal with some of those issues as we go further into the battle. But um, when, when in a straightforward stand-up fight, line to line, they actually performed extremely well, as we will talk about, because General Clinton's division will certainly testify to that. Well, I think that's maybe a good a good opportunity then to to move forward and and maybe uh, Gareth, you could start by saying so. What was the next phase of the battle then after after these initial British attacks? Okay, well, obviously Marcus has mentioned Leith's attack in the centre and uh, Le Marchand's uh, charge with the cavalry. At 
almost the same time, but probably about 15 minutes behind, uh, Cole's division had also been sent across to his left to uh, to fight to to actually maneuver towards the other end of the uh, sort of the heights there, um, and as he moves forward, um, he actually initially comes up against a line. His troops are in two lines. This is Cole's two lines, and they manage to push the French back some way. And yet, when the second line gets involved, they actually start to hold the British position and actually the firefight becomes quite serious and both sides are losing great numbers. At about the same time, Pack, who is in charge of a Portuguese brigade, had been given relatively open orders by Wellington to keep an eye on the Cole's left. And uh, that is where the great appeal is. And basically, Pack makes the decision that he believes he needs to actually attack the Great Arapil and su to support Cole's left, because it was a danger otherwise of these troops on this height coming on the left of Cole. Well, it, that turns into a bit of a disaster. Uh, we can talk about that a bit more a little later, because I would like to actually mention what Singe says about that, but it certainly wasn't an easy uh, thing to attack. And Pack and his troops get in, come in for quite a lot of criticism for this. But in fact, I think they were attacking what was pretty well an impregnable little height to try and take one very well defended. Uh, but they, them having been driven back, allowed those troops to come into the left flank of Cole's troops. And actually the French therefore start pushing Cole back down into the valley and back across the valley. Um, and at that point, where a British victory was virtually certain all the way through, and I think everyone thought it was going to be a, a piece of cake, suddenly we we're at a position where I would describe it as the, the, the chances for the French perhaps had not got to 50-50, but I think the British in the centre were suddenly very concerned about what was going on. With that happening then, at what, at what point was the situation rescued? What happened? Well, I'll take that further on if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. Wellington actually uh, had noticed that this was starting to happen. Clearly, it was, it was clear that Cole was in trouble um, and Pack was certainly in a lot of trouble. And he sent forward Clinton's division. Um, now, Clinton's division coming forward actually did drive the French off and drove them way back towards where the woods are that Marcus mentioned earlier, where they then put up... Uh, a bit of a, a last line of defence, should we say, in trying to hold back the, the British advance. Um, however, the whole question of Clinton's attack uh, seems to raise quite a lot of comment by people. I mean, I've seen numerous comments from people saying that, um, that basically that Clinton um, threw his men into the action uh, because he wanted to make his name. And uh, he basically sort of um, was happy to see thousands of his men die just to get his name in lights, basically, and things like this, which um, doesn't totally tally with what I can see went on. And, and certainly Wellington certainly didn't seem to have a, a major problem with Clinton. Don't, don't get me wrong. I've, I've actually dealt with Clinton in Waterloo as well. And Clinton was not the easiest man to get on with. Uh, certainly the other generals who were working underneath him were desperately trying to move divisions because he was 
um, I can only describe him as an, an autonomous of a, a, an officer. He just he expected the soldiers to be like wooden sort of sort of things that moved around a battlefield and did exactly what he said, and that's all they wanted out of him. Um, so he was hated, and the officers hated working with him. But there's no question that I can find of his actual competency. That's a different matter. I don't know if Marcus has got a different view on that. No, I don't think Hinton was incompetent. Um, all of my reading shows that actually by the time he goes in, Clausel, who's now commanding the French army, has actually managed to organise this kind of, it's pushing towards a rear guard. I think you'd agree, Gareth, that mm. um, they certainly form up a, a battery, a large battery of guns of somewhere in the region of 40 guns. Um, and the French actually turn around effectively and open fire with muskets and cannon at really mm. short range. And that stalls... Uh, the attack and causes quite a few British casualties. So I don't think it's incompetency. I think it's that the British are now expecting just to kind of fix bayonets and sweep across the field. And the French, you know, we always should give the French good credit. They are an incredible fighting force, that mm. they actually hold their discipline when some of the men are streaming away, but the regiments that are still held together turn around and fight. And that then causes a kind of a secondary action in the centre uh, between Pack and Clinton's units and uh, the kind of the rear guard under Clausel. Mm. And Gareth, you mentioned there was uh, an account you wanted to talk about. Is that relevant to this this part of the fight? Well, it's just before, actually. It's actually, um, it's, it's a, a sh relatively short piece, if that's okay. But I'll just read out yeah, if, sure. if I'm right to do it. But Captain Singe, as I said, was actually ADC to um, General Pack. So he's talking about the actual attack on the um, this sort of this height, which is a rocky height, which is extremely difficult to actually get at. And he gives it a, quite a good description of how difficult it was and how the French deployed to actually defeat their attack completely. This is the um, greater Arapil, is it? Is it the greater? Yes, it is. Yes, yes. So if I read this shortest piece, if that's OK for you. So I sure. said, at this critical moment, the head of Sir Noel Hill, Hill's column, which had followed me in support, was close up and Hill himself called to me to ask what to do and what was before us, as he could not see. I said, be quick and let your leading company close up to this bank and fire away while the others deploy as fast as they can and fire as they get up. The enemy exposed and we are protected by this parapet. So they're actually behind sort of about four foot of rock with the French just above them so they can fire at them. To my horror, Hill replied, you forget we are not loaded. Well, said I, we have no other chance. Load away as fast as you can. He gave the word of command and the men were in the act. I was addressing some few words of encouragement as well as the breathless state of anxiety I was in permitted me to do so. And my horse was falling as he, as on the steep slopes and two or three of the storming party were trying to scramble up the scarp we were trying to get up when the whole line opposed to us fired, knocked me over and literally cut to pieces the few that had killed, uh, climbed the wall. My thigh was broken and in falling, having no hold of the saddle, I could not hold in any manner save myself. Ronald, this horse, made a couple of springs down the hill while I was falling and this together with the mangled bodies of those who fell back off the scarp on the heads of Hill's column caused them to fall back in confusion while still loading. And as they were unable to do so fast enough, it caused a sensation of panic, which caused them to completely to retire. So it gives you some idea of the confusing sort of battle it was. Um, he does explain that uh, Pack had decided to storm these heights 
in the same way they had done at Badajoz effectively, which was don't get involved in shooting, go in with just the bayonets unloaded. As you can see, in this case, it didn't really work for them um, because the French stood on the top of, the, of this parapet and literally just uh, sort of blasted them away. Um, but it gives, a, a, to me, a clear indication that it was a very tough nut to crack. Uh, whereas a lot of histories like to really sort of say that Pax attack, yes, it may not be well organized and perhaps it should be done better in some other ways, but clearly was not as easy as some people try to portray it as. And it's, it, it's almost made as, as a, a real criticism of the Portuguese soldiers that they failed so dismally to actually take this height. And I think it's a bit more than that, to, to it than that. Yeah, I think it sounds pretty horrific having to clamber up sort of rocks as tall as yourself and then try and fight at the end of it, that, mm -hmm. especially while carrying your musket. That can't have been easy. No, no. And particularly with them actually sort of firing in sort of volleys continuously at the same time. So it's, uh, you know, it, it would have been horrendous, I'm sure. And um, was 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 the greater Arapil taken eventually or, or did the French just eventually withdrew? Effectively, yes, that's what happened is, is they sort of fell back to this uh, sort of further line that Marcus was mentioning. And that really caused them to actually abandon it because they'd obviously lost that height, those heights they needed to retire. Um, so they then started removing themselves from there. So it wasn't taken in that sense. It was it was given up. So was the battle as good as over at this point or was there still a bit more fighting to be done? Marcus, do you want to jump in? Yeah, it's it's mostly over. There's still some fighting in the centre, uh, but we are pushing towards what is now um, a one-way uh, battle with a rearguard action. Uh, it's still fierce, mostly, I say, in towards the centre. Uh, and this is where we actually, as the French start to break, the infantry go in. And there's actually cases where the, the British heavy cavalry are still milling around from the 3rd Division. And the French actually throw themselves towards the British infantry to try to surrender uh, because the British cavalry are causing so much damage with their, their heavy swords. Uh, and this is where we get some really uh, important kind of legacies. The 88th Connaughts um, capture a, an Ottoman banner, which is like it's known as the Jingling Johnny. And it's um, if you can try to imagine a pole with about three metal arms and loads of bells on it, like Morris Dancer bells, perhaps <laughs> coming off. And uh, that was a really um, popular thing in the, uh, the Eastern armies and the French had adopted it. And it's not quite as much as an eagle, but the 88th get that. Then the 30th Regiment, uh, a Lieutenant uh, Pratt, gets an eagle from the French. And then the 44th East Essex uh, under Ensign Pierce uh, finds an eagle. And they do find an eagle. Uh, they capture it, of course, give them all the glory. But uh, as the French officer realises he's going to be captured, he heads towards a farmhouse, unscrewing the eagle from its pole and shoves it down his greatcoat. Uh, and there's not many depictions of this, but, but actually, effectively, there's one or two in an Osprey book where he's kind of reaching for it and go, oh, I'll have that, son. And he takes the eagle back off him. Um, and one of the French soldiers, actually, the French officers got it. One of the French soldiers goes to shoot um, Lieutenant Pierce as he does this. And one of Pierce's men shoots him. So there's a little bit of fighting over it. Uh, but it is him kind of realising that he's going to get it captured. And he's trying to secrete the eagle away down his jacket and uh, run away with it. So uh, that kind of highlights some of the, the tokens that are taken. And 
um, some things we've talked about in the past, I know, Christian, is that, you know, the Eagles are a great symbol of uh, regimental honour and glory. And many of them, are, most of them, uh, are touched by Napoleon Bonaparte's own hands. So for their uh, kind of worship of him as well, it gives them that identity and honour. So uh, it's, a, it's a great symbol for them. And so they're equally for the, uh, the 30th and the 44th. It's a great honour to have taken uh, Eagles at Salamanca. So there was two eagles taken at Salamanca, was there? What well, was there? Oh, is oh. this is this another point of debate <laughs> I'm hearing? Um, funny enough, this reminds me very much of Waterloo, because at Waterloo we know that two eagles were captured, and yet there are many many stories of three being captured, and in fact almost every single correspondent that wrote within the first three days of the battle say three people three eagles were captured including wellington in his original dispatch it got changed in the newspaper to two because that's all it got got, got to, to london um so there's always been mysteries at waterloo and funny enough there is a similar mystery at salamanca uh, because Marcus is quite right in saying that the two that were captured that are now in museums in Britain are the 22nd and the 62nd. But if you read any of the um, accounts at the time, including the two major historians I've mentioned earlier on of Oman and Fortescue, they mention only two eagles as well, but they mention the 22nd and the 101st, not the 62nd. All right. And if you read a number of accounts from the, the around the period, they do say three eagles were captured. So there is some question over that. And funny enough, the only thing I've seen, and I can't prove it in any way, shape or form, but there is some possible evidence that the 101st, which had the jingling Johnny, it is it is actually shown in many um, sort of portraits of the actual battle, etc., as having its eagle on the top of the jingling jang, uh, Johnny. And um, there is talk that the men thought it was made of solid gold and that it was carved up. Now, we don't know if this is true or not, but I do find it strange that both of the most eminent uh, sort of Peninsula War historians ever, both came out with the same answer, which was the 101st captured, uh, lost their eagle. Um, and it, it is a, a funny one. I've not unfortunately been able to solve it. There's, it's going to be very, very difficult to prove it in any way, shape or form, unless we find an, a member of the 88th has got a bit of um, 101st Eagle still in his house where they chopped it up or whatever. But it's, it's a very difficult one to, to know what, what the truth is. But there, you know, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence for the third, but that's all we can ever say. I'm always amazed that the, the cavalry um, going round and they're so far behind the lines don't capture uh, an eagle here they really mm. had the opportunity to they've broken up so many regiments but yeah yeah uh, I didn't uh, the reason I didn't mention the 88 is I thought Gareth might um, but they certainly parade their jingling Johnny uh, later mm. on when actually they're disbanding because uh, they're one of the uh, Republic mm. of they fall into the Republic of Ireland as the recruiting area so when they're disbanded they they parade that like a captured eagle mm. um, and they, we certainly know of eagles that came back to Britain who were stolen because the public thought they were made of solid gold and mm. you know they probably would with gilt uh, gold on the outside so mm. for a, a relatively poor loot hungry British uh, you know soldier it might look quite uh, 
quite appeasing to break apart an eagle and uh, apologise for it later. <laughs> I'm sure they would have been very disappointed when they realised it wasn't solid gold, <laughs> if, that, if that was in fact the case. Really, really red face to then go, damn. <laughs> <laughs> So, Gareth, obviously the light division are one of the most famous units in Wellington's Peninsular Army. Mm -hmm. How heavily involved were the light division during the battle? What did they do? Uh, funny enough, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment on um, sort of new light division uh, memoirs and found many of them. Uh, and embarrassingly to say, uh, although it's in their battle honours, um, the light division didn't do an awful lot. Uh, they watched most of it going on to their right, because they were right on the left-hand side of the battlefield, uh, just skirmishing at most uh, for most of the battle and really uh, were spectators to it. Um, and some of their accounts are quite embarrassed about the fact that they actually are just mere spectators and, uh, you know, sort of the fact that they weren't called on to do anything. Um, they find it quite difficult because they usually, obviously, right in the thick of it. And they certainly weren't on this occasion. Yeah, because they're normally real thrusters, aren't they? Well, yes. I mean, they were usually sort of very much at the forefront of the army, thrust into the, the main action or whatever, uh, whether they were meant to be or not, because uh, sometimes their commanders put them in positions they need, didn't need to be in. Um, but, yeah, as I said, on this occasion, they really haven't got much to say about Salamanca, uh, apart from describing what everybody else does with a bit of a sort of a, a sigh thinking, well, why wasn't it us? So if, if we had to sort of uh, call out one unit as, you know, the, this is probably an unfair question, but it, is there a particular unit we need to give kudos to at this battle who really, who really you know, punched above their weight, who, who achieved a lot? Would it be the heavy brigade or would there be a particularly inf infantry battalion you'd, you'd want to single out? Uh, well, my I don't know what Marcus was saying. My my personal favourite in this is the 88th. I think that they they really did punch well above their weight. Uh, a small battalion actually really uh, made a huge impact on the battle. And whether they actually won an eagle at the end, I think they got one in the end. But who knows? But uh, I think that they they should get a serious mention. Yeah, I I would I I would have gone for the 88th Connaught Rangers. Sorry. <laughs> but so if I can't go for the 88th Connaught, so they've been taken, I'll, they don't get talked about enough. I'll go for the 44th East Essex okay. um, for capturing an eagle. Uh, they go on and do a lot at Waterloo and Cachibra especially. And they don't get much limelight. They have, they've got a reenactment group today who are really nice uh, gentlemen. So um, I think we'll give them some glory. As, as a, you know, a county line regiment, they, uh, they kind of, capture an eagle by uh, slightly different means, which I think, and they, they hold the line and the centre fighting is pretty fierce. So uh, if it's the 88, if it's not the 88th Connaught Rangers screaming their Gallic war charges, then the uh, quiet boys from East Essex, then maybe. Yeah. And I've got to be fair to them. It's the, unfortunately, it's the only, it's the only eagle in the UK that I haven't actually seen yet. I've got to get to Chelmsford Museum sometime because that's where it is. It is a quiet little museum. Yeah, out yeah. of the way. And then, well, let's let's talk about casualties then. And maybe this one's for you, Gareth. Can okay. you give us a sense of what the casualties were on both sides? How 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 heavy were the casualties? Well, again, as as per usual, French casualty rates is a bit of a finger in the in the sort of uh, sky and just hoping for the wind to catch it. Um, it's we know that their their losses were in the region of fifteen thousand. 
okay, all told, but of that, 7,000 were prisoners. So around about 14 to 15,000. So around about 7,000 killed, wounded, and about 7,000 prisoners. So it's a, it's a sizable chunk of the army. It's a good third of the army. Um, whereas Wellington's force loses around about 5,000 killed and wounded. Um, so even on the sort of killed and wounded stake, they certainly come out better. Um, but what I would actually say is that when you look at the losses within the British uh, sort of divisions, um, none of the divisions really lose more than about 500 men out of their two and a half, 3,000 men they had in each division, apart from Clinton's 6th Division, which actually comes in, as we've discussed, just at the end and has this major firefight at the end. But to give some idea as to how strong that firefight was and why I, I'm a little bit of a fan of Clinton in this on this occasion, not always, but on this occasion, is because the actual uh, division lost over 1,200 men killed and wounded. Now that's more than double any other division in the entire army. And yet you've already discussed, you know, Marcus and I have discussed these major attacks by these other divisions and the losses are nowhere near the same. So, you know, they, they get up to nearly, a well, just over a third, and it's not a million miles off a half of their entire division is put out of action. So that's a serious fight they're in at the end of the battle when everyone's thinking it's all over. Yeah, I mean that's horrific. Because don't don't they say? And Marcus, you're a, you're a military man. You may you may be able to uh, tell me if this is true or not. Don't they say that anything above twenty five percent casualties for a unit is catastrophic, and it it loses any cohesion as a unit generally? I was going to say the the cohesion after that level, because you're going to lose so much unit like kind of integrity there is is going to be huge. But yeah. I mean we we've seen regiments come through um, early parts of the Waterloo campaign where the regiments had to go together. Um, yeah, and then to link it into the Second World War if you and more recent conflicts, if you're talking city fighting, you can expect 50% casualties um, moving through city uh, fighting. So it's high, uh, you're gonna lose unit cohesion, uh, but there are battles where they, they've sadly lost more. Um, and on the reverse side, there are you know so many French casualties taken between that and Garcia Hernandez. Uh, it does show it as a as a great victory as well. So at this point of the day, then is the battle are the French now completely uh, you know re retreating and uh, are they are they a spent force at this point or is there still further fighting during the during the course of the night and into the next day? Do you want to cover that one, Marcus? Well, short answer, yes, they're, they're both. They are relatively spent force. Um, Foy's division form a rear guard uh, with the British marching on. If they hadn't formed this rear guard, I think Wellington would have just rolled up thousands more of the, the French. I know that's conjecture, but they, they really could have just got amongst them. However, it leads us to the next day, and I'll probably let Gareth explain more, of Garcia Hernandez, uh, next action which is uh, famous mostly for breaking the squares but i thought you were going to talk about albert albert tormes first we can do both please go on uh well i mean albert tormes was the nearest ford for the french to escape back across the tormes uh behind their lines uh and unfortunately um wellington mistakenly thought 
uh, that a Spanish general and his forces were actually holding the castle and therefore the, the controlling the bridge. Uh, they'd left, they just hadn't bothered to tell Wellington. Uh, so unfortunately, when Wellington thinks uh, that, you know, that he's got these troops sort of rushing off towards the riverside and he'll be able to sort of sweep them up, um, he then finds out that in fact, he's not gonna pick up many at all because they get, they're able to get away quite cleanly. Um, so unfortunately, where is it quite often, you know, so the, the great success in a battle is the route afterwards when you actually really exploit it and you sort of take many prisoners and basically um, destroy any resemblance of a, a, a force afterwards um, didn't happen. And it all happened through a, a complete, well, I like to say, as, uh, to be nice, I would say a, an accident, but I'd actually say, you know, there's a bit of incompetence in there, basically, because if he told Wellington, he'd have known what was going to happen. And he could have sort sent his, perhaps his cavalry to ensure that there was no way through or whatever. Um, but that brings us on to the following day, which I let Marcus talk about now. So the next day we move on to uh, Garcia Hernandez. And uh, this is where the, the mostly the King's German Legion uh, heavy cavalry, the first and second dragoons, catch up with Foy's rearguard. I believe he had six battalions and he, he sees the approaching uh, German and British cavalry and, and forms them into, into square. And this is where kind of the unthinkable happens. The square being uh, traditionally four ranks deep, bayonets out, you've got sharp corners. And horses, though you can train an animal, are not a dumb animal. They won't jump into something that's going to danger them. So they, they always break around a square. I always think of like the groin of... Um, of rocks out into a sea, you know, they'll split, the waves will split around this point. And that's what we see at many battles. But at Garcia Hernandez, the French kind of uh, put the nail in their own coffin, that they shoot the, um, the King's German Legion at close distance. And one or if not more of the kind of horses die and crash into a wall of the, of the French square. And the King's German Legion, to their credit, see this moment. And they've only got a moment because they'll be closed up very quickly and they follow in they follow into this square you know swords swinging and uh you know chopping down on, on french shackles and necks and shoulders and it causes this the panic by the time you've got men inside the square you can't fight both sides because then you've weakened the outside so the french mostly do self-preservation and stream away to the second square hoping that if they get amongst their friends um of the other battalion they can then bolster that. But in doing so, they weaken that square and the King's German Legion follow in. So we get an amazing moment of cavalry kind of daring do at Garcia Hernandez that not one, but two squares are broken in the history of breaking squares. It's almost unheard of. And is that Foy's division pretty much destroyed at that point? I mean, what does, what does that mean for the, for, the, for the greater scheme of things? Well, yeah, they, they lose effectively, a, you know, both those battalions lose um, the majority of their men killed, wounded, captured. Um, so the other four um, battalions still there, but they kind of limp off uh, watching. And those two um, battalions, I don't know quite what happened to them afterwards. I think so many of uh, actually have to surrender uh, whilst the um, King's German Legion capture up them. Those two battalions are effectively uh, a spent force, actually. Um, Foy pulls the rest of his men uh, very quickly up and uh, all the rest of the Allied cavalry kind of come in and just 
spend their time um, killing those who won't surrender or uh, capturing. And they captured several hundred men in a very quick action. And then after Garcia Hernandez, then we don't need to go too far into the future because I'll cover that in future episodes. But what did that mean now? Was Marmont completely, was his army completely broken? But Wellington was now free to advance at will. What was the situation now? So, yeah, so Marmont's having to really beat a hasty retreat. Um, you've got Salts in the south besieging Cadiz, and he actually eventually has to uh, release that siege on the, on the city. Um, but there's still a large army, um, actually, with Joseph Bonaparte down to the south. And Wellington's got um, an opposition force to the north. He does, however, able to march in and liberate uh, Madrid. Now, unfortunately, the overall campaign is as these actual three armies of Salt and Joseph and the Army of the North actually manage to congregate, Wellington, as always, is going to end up uh, outnumbered. And what he can't do is have all these three armies congregate back together and he'll be vastly outnumbered. So he, he liberates Madrid. There's a huge celebration in the city. Uh, it's added to things like the Portuguese centerpiece, Apsi House, where they actually have the Salamanca and they've got on the next plate Madrid as a victory. Um, however, he doesn't hold it for very long. And quite soon afterwards, he realises actually he has to move back and he's got the safety of um, Ciudad Rodrigo and Badajoz on the borders. And he's had to have to head west, actually, towards the safety of, um, kind of those, those cities and those forts so uh he has a great uplift but it's just not going to last very long because as always in the peninsula the allies are outnumbered well so gareth maybe you could jump in there um feel free to take this in any direction you like but how big a strategic significance then was salamanca well funny if i was going to say something then when marcus was finishing um obviously taking Madrid was very much a political thing, you know, obviously. And um, Wellington actually obviously hoped to hold on to it, but really knew that he was up, up against it. I think the biggest factor, um, which sometimes gets forgotten, and, but Marcos has mentioned it slightly there, is that basically Salamanca caused the French to abandon any idea of taking the southern half of Spain. Soult has to retreat, and that's it. Literally, they're never going to go back there unless, you know, unless things turn dramatically. Um, so he actually, in a sense, liberates the other half of Spain by a victory in the northern half, if you see what I mean. Mark, okay, so like it was very important. Well... I think I think that is important, especially given the Spanish government was in Cadiz, wasn't it? And I guess if if Cadiz is now completely safe, that that's, you know, a big a big win for the Spanish. Yeah, certainly. I mean, obviously, it's a huge expanse of country as well. that's suddenly no longer under threat. Um, clearly, obviously, uh, things could have gone better up north. And I'm, I know you're going to talk about that in other uh, things in the future, but um, it's. It, it takes him on the road to fight. I think it's one of the things that takes him on the road towards final victory. But final victory, like in many wars, is, is a number of steps away yet. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's good then to say, did Salamanca finally prove that the Allied army in the peninsula was not just good for defence, but that it was an army that, although we've seen it before at Oporto and other places, 
now can sort of be classed as an army that's equally as effective in attack as it is in defense. Did Salamanca prove that once and for all? Oh, Mark, well, this is one for you. I'd, argue, I'd argue it didn't need proving. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, yes, it did in many levels. He went, he went on the attack, but on an opportunistic kind of level, waiting for the moment. Uh, but we've, as you said, you know, we've seen the examples um, before. Very at Relisa, his first engagements up the up the multiple hills at Oporto. You know, Wellington is more than just a defensive um, general, and uh, to kind of purposely use a term that is a hill I will die on. Uh, whether that is a reverse slope hill, uh, it was said <laughs> to be discussed. But um, yeah, he goes on from there to have many more attacks. You know, Vittoria is a well thought out battle. He prepares to go on the attack. And then as we push into the Pyrenees later on, two years down the line, uh, it is constantly on the attack. But it's important to remember that not only are the battles often on the attack, that even other battles, he is, Wellington, this is pushing into enemy held territory and then letting the enemy come to him. So strategically, they are offensive as well. Yeah. But Salamanca proves that he can be a bit of an all-rounder. He is waiting for that moment that he can strike. And that is why it's often known as Wellington's master strike, a battle that's kind of won in 45 minutes. But I'm very interested in boxing and I work with a coach at boxing. And I've really started to appreciate Wellington's strategy a lot more through some of the training I'm doing in that essentially I think of Wellington, he would dominate his opponents through his footwork in a way, wouldn't he? He would, he would outmaneuver them and use his sort of fancy footwork to kind of get around the sides and make them uncomfortable. And they're like, what, what's he doing? And they'd take a big swing at him and he'd just kind of slip it and, and look for his own counter. And I, I can really see the sort of parallels to a boxer, you know. Yeah. I, I don't box, but I can, I can certainly see that, that you, he's, it feels like more like Sun Tzu, you know, he's fighting battles when he thinks he can already win the war. And when he's pushing up into enemy held territories and all of a sudden, you know, two or three armies are coming towards him, he's not going to fight their battle yeah. because he knows he'll lose or he knows he sounds a really poor chance. So he'll fall back. That's why we have things like the lines of Torres Vedras. You know, he'll step back until it's favourable on his terms. And then he'll do probably what you say. You know, he waits, he waits. The enemy's getting exhausted. And that's when he'll step to the side and throw in the punch. There's no point just letting the opponent, if he's bigger and uh, uglier than him, just pummel him into the ground. He needs to also protect himself. We're talking boxing, has put our gloves up. But Wellington has an it has a finite supply of uh, men and resources, and he can't afford to throw them away. He doesn't have conscription, which is a, everyone always forgets is really unpopular in France. The French dislike Napoleon for conscription. Uh, he's not always loved. And uh, he's bleeding France dry. And by uh, 1814, the, the conscripts are young or old. You know, they, he's, France is you know, just pushing men as the solution to a problem. And in, in Spain, they have a huge army who are being constantly harassed by Wellington, by the Spanish army, and then by the guerrillas as well across Portugal and Spain, who are just causing huge casualties, as well as the attrition from disease and the environment. So, um, yeah, Wellington is going to be very canny and purposely kind of use his fancy footwork to step back when needs be. And if he has to give up Madrid, that is a sacrifice he's willing to make. Mm. So I, I wouldn't disagree. Sorry, Gareth. 
Sorry, I wouldn't disagree with anything Marcus has said at all, but I just want to bring in one other comment. Um, Marcus is completely right in saying that, you know, Wellington's previous record uh, makes it quite clear he can attack or defend no matter what he has. And, and let's be honest, most of the time he's defending purely because he's actually got less numbers and, and, and as Marcus said, can't lose them, can't afford to lose them. Um, but I think the Salamanca and certainly Victoria later, but Salamanca is the start of it. It's when the rest of the European allies and potential allies of the future start seeing as a Britain as a, a realistic possible force as an army. I think I think up until then, most of the battles they fought in Spain and Portugal are actually, as far as they're concerned, small affairs. Uh, this is the first big one that actually makes noises in every every sort of corridor of power throughout Europe and suddenly makes him uh, very much more a sought-after general. So let me follow up on that then, Gareth. Could we go as far as to say that this was Wellington's greatest ever victory, at least on a technical level, if not, uh, if not strategically? Oh, you're asking a Waterloo man here, that one. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Clearly, you have to put it at the top. Um, I struggle to put it higher than Waterloo only because of its, you know, what, what that achieved as well. Um, but I certainly put it on a par. You know, there are, there are reasons for putting it higher, but uh, I, I struggle to do so. Um, that's, that's my bias. At the end of the day, um, you know, there are other other battles, and certainly Waterloo is one of them, where also massive gains are produced out of, of out of out of it. And if 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 anything, you know, let's be honest, there were more more um, specific gains from Waterloo than any other. So you know, in that sense, that it, that's got a little bit of an advantage as well. But certainly, his you know, they were very different battles. This is a battle of him showing opportunism and actual really going for it when he has the opportunity. Whereas Waterloo, as he admitted himself, is a slugging match. And it was him just, you know, sort of um, giving more bottom, I think he says at one time, than, than Napoleon did, uh, if you want to work that out. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, um, yeah, I, I put it in that great pantheon. I don't like to put one on top of the other particularly, but I would put it in that top, you know, three of his battles. I, I think it's possibly fair to say to, to Gareth that it's, Salamanca is probably tactically a better battle because mm. he's having to go and use initiative and go on the advantage. But strategically, you know, Waterloo resulted in, in more. We finally got rid of Bonaparte. But um, yeah, tactically, Salamanca is fantastic. And it's a, it's a really short engagement as, a, mm. as the main fighting goes. Um, that's, there's not always lots to, to talk about because some of the battles over very quickly and certainly certain bits of people's fighting's over. But um, it's, it's one up there. I mean, if you start listing uh, Vittoria and other battles, uh, uh, we, you know, Fuentes de Uno is never going to be one of his great victories, but Salamanca, Salamanca is, Vittoria is, and then I'd argue, um, you know, it's not going to be a surprise to you, uh, Christian, but I'd argue Porto is because it's one of the least bloody. I just have to throw a say into as well from India because that's say. another huge win by him. Um, and, so you know, and the odds are the same. Eight to one or something. Yes, uh, they're hard to calculate. But yeah, I mean, obviously, I know you. You know, people will denigrate the forces against etc. But no, you know, no force at eight to one is is likely to lose. 
it, it's one of those things that, you know, we put Napoleonic historians into a room and we, we argue Wellington's greatest victory. And it's because he has so many. He, he yeah. only really lost rearguard actions and smaller battles. He never really lost a pitch battle uh, and something that people will be interested in. You know, he wasn't great at sieges. Um, but his pitch battles, he fought them on his terms, and so he fought them to win. Yeah, brilliant. Well, I think before we wrap up, Marcus, I understand you've got a, a live, a, a live uh, a presentation coming up uh, very, very soon. Can you can you just tell us a little bit about that? So, if anyone who's listening to this wants to wants to follow up and learn a bit more, how can they do so? Yeah, if uh, if this falls within uh, dates, I've been given the great honour on Friday, the uh, 23rd of July, so very close to Salamanca Day, uh, myself and uh, my kind of online uh, compatriot, Zach White, uh, we're going to be speaking at the National Army Museum, Chelsea, uh, and actually just found out that the in-person tickets have actually sold out, which is fantastic. They might increase it uh, if everything goes well with COVID, but it's also going to be a, a blended uh, lecture. So we're going to be online as well. So if you register online, uh, hopefully you can join us digitally. It's going to be about 45 minutes and we are definitely giving time to do questions and answers at the end. And that's all being handled uh, through the National Army Museum uh, platform. So we'll talk uh, a bit more about Salamanca as a bit of a double act there as well. Fantastic. And can I ask Gareth, what about yourself? What are you working on that listeners might want to follow up and learn a bit more about? Or, or maybe if you've got any books on the horizon that they might be able to purchase? Well, there's always books on the horizon. Um, there's a, a trilogy coming out, uh, which will be the end of the year with Pen and Sword of, um, as I said, light division memoirs, most of which have not been published before or are very rare indeed. Um, one for each regiment. So it will start with the 43rd, then it'll be the 52nd, then it'll be the 95th and staff. Um, so they'll come out over the, over the autumn and into the new, into the new year. Uh, I've also got my 100th book coming out, which is Waterloo Archive 15, which is a special map edition where we've brought every map we can find, which is only is pre-1820, pre of Waterloo and also any drawings that we can find of the Waterloo battlefield that were pre 1820. So all the early stuff to get a, and bring it all together and beautiful color album, which will be A4 size. So double A4 when you open it and some of the maps will cross A4. A4. So lots of books. And like, my, like I will also mention podcasts. I'm also doing podcasts for the uh, Waterloo Association. And there's the next one is on uh, the 17th of July. And uh, you can get tickets for that if you, if you just get onto the Waterloo Association. Um, and that is on the Twin Battles of Copenhagen. Slightly different subject. So there you go, guys. That's the end of today's chit chat. But I would really recommend joining my guests for those chats that they were just talking about. I, for one, also can't wait to get my hands on Gareth's new books. He really is a prolific writer. I hope one day I can write so many books. Talking of which, I do have two out that you may enjoy. That's the Military History Geek's Guide to the Anglo-Zulu War and the Military History Geek's Guide to the Peninsula War, Volume 1. That covers the battles of Rolisa, Vimero and Talavera. Both are available on Amazon, just search for them or search for my name, Christian Parkinson. And also you can buy them from payhip.com slash redcoathistory, where you can get the PDF for $2.99 at the current price. 
Anyway, let's move on. And next month, I'm taking a quick break from the Peninsula War, just a quick one, to talk with Sikh historian Amapol Singh about the first Anglo-Sikh war fought in the Punjab in 1845 and 46. If you are interested in India and the Victorian era, then you don't want to miss that. For die-hard Peninsula War buffs, don't worry, I'll be back in September to talk with the wonderful Charles Esdale and Mark Thompson, who's a friend of the show. We'll be discussing the Siege of Burgos. Some say it was Wellington's toughest scrape. Lots of great stuff on the horizon then, so don't forget to subscribe and I'll see you soon.